Hi, I'm Carrie Glassman, founder of Nutritious Life and the Nutritious Life Studio and the host of this podcast, Living a Nutritious Life. Are you the friend who's always being asked for health advice? Now imagine turning that passion into a fulfilling career with our Become a Nutrition Coach program. Step into a world where your enthusiasm for wellness becomes the heart of your own thriving business. With me as your professor and guide and coach on our user-friendly digital platform, you can learn from anywhere at your very own pace. It's perfect for your busy life. Envision empowering others to live their healthiest lives all while growing a career you love. You're not just gaining a certification here, you're joining a community of like-minded professionals ready to support and celebrate with you every step of the way. So what are you waiting for? It's time to nourish your future and help change lives, including your own. Head over to nutritiouslife.com forward slash BNC for a free class and a sneak peek of the program. Your journey to becoming a nutrition coach begins now. If you're finding it hard to find anything to be positive and optimistic about these days, we are certainly bombarded with an overwhelming amount of, for lack of a better term, bad shit going on in the world, then you're going to want to listen to today's podcast. It is a very important listen, whether you're having a rough time right now or you're in a good place. I believe the info shared today will help everyone in some way. So welcome back to the Living a Nutritious Life podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Glassman, and today's episode is a special one. We're here with the brilliant Dr. Sue Varma, someone I've known for many years and am lucky enough to call a friend. Dr. Varma is a distinguished psychiatrist and cognitive behavioral therapist based in New York City. With over two decades of private practice experience, Dr. Varma has made significant contributions to the field of mental health. She served as the pioneering medical director and psychiatrist for the esteemed 9-11 mental health program at NYU. Alongside her clinical work, she's also a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at New York University Langone Health. Her accomplishments have been recognized by the American Psychiatric Association. You can read her full impressive bio in the show notes. Dr. Varma is a sought after medical commentator appearing on major news programs and networks. Listen to the podcast to learn how that plays into how the two of us met. In this episode, we talk about positive toxicity, how we can change our mindset even if we are hardwired to be glass half empty. We also talk about the concept of practical optimism, which by the way, is the name of her book that comes out today. Dr. Varma also addresses the need for early mental health skills education, and she shares her four M's of mental health. You have to listen to find out what they are. I'm pretty certain that you will walk away from this episode with the inspiration to infuse more joy, more connection, and more intention into your daily life. So let's do this. Keep listening to learn how optimism is more than just a feeling. It's a strategy for healthier, happier living. And as always, if you love the podcast, please rate, review, and share. Welcome, welcome, Dr. Sue Varma, my dear friend, who I miss and have not seen in so long. I am so happy to see you and have you here on this podcast. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Carrie. I am so happy to see you. Like any excuse, I'm like, yes, I am talking about my book, but really it's just to see you. So let's be clear about the real reason I'm here today. I love that. Well, it's so good. You know what? Let's start there, actually. I was just going to ask for you to give your background to everybody because I just did a little intro about you and how much I adore you and how incredible I think you are and all the good, amazing things you're doing in the world. But let's let's start with actually how we met because that's kind of a fun story. Um, and yeah. I was actually thinking about it when I was... was preparing for this podcast today, I was thinking, how long have we known each other? When So we ran into each other in a green room. That was the very first time we met, right? On TV. And it was so interesting because Carrie, I have been following you for years and like flipping through women's magazines when you're getting your nails done, your hair done and in every magazine, I always see, you know, about you and your advice. And it was so interesting because when I started my career as a psychiatrist, like uh, around the same time I started this parallel career of speaking to the media, speaking to the public. 
And, you know, like it's been, let's say 15 or 20 years now. And throughout the time, like there were very few health and wellness experts. Like I, I consider you an OG, you know? So I was like, I see her everywhere on television and I'm building her <laughs> empire and business. So you've always been kind of on my radar, but you know, one thing I love, I think, yes, it's nice to be on, you know, on TV and morning shows and to be able to talk about the work that you're so passionate about and, and reach, you know, millions of people as compared to, let's say in my practice as a psychiatrist, I'm a couples counselor, I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist, I work with patients, but you know, there's only so many people you're going to work with in a lifetime when you're working one-on-one with each person, right? So I love that we both share this sort of common goal of reaching the public, but you've always been on my radar and it was so random because we're all in our own green rooms, right? Like no one really knows who else is on set that day unless you like specifically ask because they're not telling you. And I remember, I think you were waiting just to go on and I was, you know, to follow in a different segment. And I was like, oh my, oh my God, like Carrie, oh my God, Carrie is here. And I went up to you and I, I was I'm thinking in my head, she's probably like, who is this crazy stalker? No! And like, <laughs> you were about to go on and like, you know, in the few minutes, like a person is sort of more focused. Um, and, you know, this, this is important to me because like, you know, we easily could have not met and I could have easily said to myself, she's busy. She's going to go on next. I don't want to interfere. Like she's going to think I'm not what, like I'm going to think I'm a stalker. But really, this is the essence, Carrie, of, and I shared this when I did a talk with you, which was kind of the impetus, like one of the things that got the ball rolling when I did a talk with you, because, and I said, I was like, when we don't take chances, we have to take chances, go outside of your comfort zone, talk to people, right? I would never have met you. I would never have done that talk. That talks was so, like, to see the reception of your audience, and they were so supportive, and everybody was, like, Instagramming and, like, tagging and just being like very supportive of this concept that I was like, there, there is something here. People want to hear about it. So I really do believe in serendipity of like synchronicity, whatever you want to call it. So full circle moment here. Well, I love all of this so much and I am 100% on your exact same page when it comes to just say hello. What's the, what's the worst thing that can happen? And if the person is rude or not nice or whatever, well, then that's their loss, right? But take that moment. If there is someone that you find yourself in a room with, or you end up seeing that you've been wanting to connect with, go for it, introduce. And, you know, I love when people introduce themselves to me and vice versa. I try to always do that when I see someone who I've, you know, admired or wanted to meet or wanted to connect with, I always want to go up and say hello. But it does sometimes take a little practice there. And I definitely think that people sometimes hesitate. Oh, I don't want to bug them. I don't want to do this. But you never know what could come from it. So this is such a good example. I mean, we then connected and it was it was at the Dr. Oz show, right? Yes. And like, I know we look like I have been on for years, like since season one, I know you had been on since the beginning. And our paths never cross. And I've met so many amazing people who are in the space and I've stayed friends with them. I'm now doing podcasts with them. And like one, you just don't think, and Carrie, I used to be a really shy kid. I mean, I haven't talked so much about it, but like, and that's also why I wrote this book because I'm like a self-help book helped me when I was growing up. And I'm like, there was just something very like actionable and tangible. And it was like, you know, do this, this, and this. And I'm like, I could never have done that. Like, 12-year-old me would never have gone up to someone, no matter how much I admired them. I'd be like, they're going to think this, they're going to think that. And my self-imposed limitations, I didn't want them to get in the way. So I got them out of the way by getting myself help, not only as a kid reading a book, but then also later on in therapy. And then also now writing a book to, to, to write the book that I wish I had when I was growing up or when I was like struggling in my 20s and 30s, even now, even now. Well, and, and I love how you just said that even now, because we're never done growing. We're never done evolving. We're never done improving and working on things. So, but I want to go back one step. So you said, so we met in the green room, we connected, we became friends. We then have, you know, connected over work and, and done many different things together and ran into each other in many different green rooms. But one other thing that you touched on that I just, I want to clarify for people, or I want to make sure that people understand, because I think it's such a cool thing is that, and this is one of the positive things that come from, that comes from being fearless and going up to that person and introducing yourself. So we then connected, like I just said, became friends. And then I asked you to speak at my masterclass for my Nutritious Life Studio students, the people in my program. I do this masterclass in-person event once a year. And you spoke at the event, the last one we did live before COVID, and then we didn't do it for the next few years. So you spoke at that event. So I also just want to make that point that you were so 
generous with your time and giving of your time. And that came from us again, making that connection um, at in the green room at the Dr. Oz show. Then you came and spoke at my event and you just touched on a little bit how that connects to the book that we're going to talk about today. So that comes out today, by the way. Today yeah. it, we are airing this podcast on the day that this book comes out. So I'm so excited about that. But can you just like tell a little bit more about that? Because again, it is such a full circle moment. I love it. Yes. And you know, that event, it was just so beautiful, um, like really well curated. You had amazing line of, of speakers and gift bags and just the energy in the room. And it was just very well done. And I couldn't stay for the whole event. I'm like, I had to go back to see patients. But, you know, I, <laughs> I when, when you give a talk, like, you know, it's so interesting because Carrie, you also can probably relate. Like there are probably so many things that we've both done over the years that like take effort, that take work, that you're not necessarily sure, okay, like what's the ROI on this? You don't know that, right? But you take a chance because I, I, I was like, I like you, I want to work with you. And whatever happens, happens. Whatever comes of this, like it's like a like it, it's it's an end into itself, right? And I think a lot of times people think of something as like a means to an end. And I would say, you know, if you trust someone, if you like them, if you believe in their work, like join forces, right? Like help each other out, participate, Absolutely. take a chance. And what it did was like anytime I give a talk, right? I have there's like a whole bunch of things that go into it. You're brainstorming, you're thinking about which stories to share, what personal anecdotes. So it forces you to kind of like, you know, I, I had to like write, a, you know, several page, you know, whatever, for the talk, prepare and just think of the best things. And having that was sort of like template and blueprint, because I, I started my career as a direct medical director of the 9-11 mental health program. So resilience, and surviving trauma, like capital T was important to me. But as time went on, I realized couple of things were not happening. One is prevention. No one was looking about how to prevent disease or illness. And then I realized that optimism is a big part of resilience. And you don't have to, like resilience focuses on bouncing back from adversity. And I was interested in helping people flourish in the face of it. So it's like, okay, the other shoe has dropped. Okay, yes, bouncing back is one thing. But then how do you really like not just survive? But how do you thrive? And not just for people who are struggling with big T, big T of trauma, life threatening illnesses, but also the everyday hassles. And so when I came to your talk, it's like, you know, you have to strike this perfect balance. And I feel like I achieved that in the years that it took to write this book was that perfect balance between giving people science, statistics, background, anecdotes, and then boom, 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 actionable steps today. And also having self-deprecating humor, like make fun of yourself. Like, and I shared, I shared like a lot of things about myself and opened up and it just really resonated with your audience. And I think you have a special group to begin with. So not everyone everywhere is going to always sort of appreciate the message, but then you also, it's kind of like a practice of this is what this is what appeals to people. This is what people want. This is what they're craving. And I, you know, I was learning that along the way with my patients who kept saying, "I need a book that does these five things." And then I, when I'm struggling, I'm like, "I need a book." So I ended up writing the book that I needed, that I knew my patients needed. And then through a series of talks, like starting off with yours and the variety of things, you you're kind of testing, you know, like I guess I don't know beta testing, whatever you want to call it, to be like, okay, this this is it, you know. So I'm grateful to you and your friendship and the and this you know sort of mission and platform that you have built that is so helpful and creative. So thank you. Oh well thank you for being you and doing the incredible work you're doing for being at that masterclass and inspiring our students and giving them so many actionable tips towards practical optimism, which we're going to talk about today, and for writing this book because I know you're going to touch so many lives and change so many lives. And that is just such a beautiful thing that you're doing in the world. So let's talk about that incredible book. So the book is called Practical Optimism and it comes out today. I'm so excited for so many people to get their hands on it. And one thing you talk about in the book, I mean, and, and I want to, I want you talk about a lot of incredible things in the book, but one thing I want to start with is the world is so chaotic right now. The world has, it seems like it has more things to be pessimistic about than ever before. At least in my lifetime, I don't ever remember there being a time in the world when there were more things to be negative, depressed, stressed, and pessimistic about. 
yet you have a book called Practical Optimism coming out. So how do we do that? How do we cultivate and create this positive mindset when it does feel like every single day there is so much there are so many things to be upset and negative about and on top of that we are being hit with that with that information at a pace that we never have in the world before with you know with with social media and many different social media platforms it's like we can't we get buzzes and notifications all day long and so much of it is sadly negative information Yes. Great questions, Carrie, because what you're touching upon is something that we actually know for a fact, that this is the hardest time in history for many people. Like they did a survey where they looked at people who have grown up through the Great Depression um, and beyond, you know, Korean War, Vietnam War, a variety of things. And they will still say that they feel for the people who are going through life now with climate change, war, inflation, you name it, all sorts of crises, opioid crisis, loneliness crisis, um, suicide, you know, is on the rise. So there are a variety of things that are happening today. In addition to being completely overstimulated, overload, it's called cyber overload, where you're inundated with information to the point where a person becomes fatigued. They have compassion fatigue, where you're like, I just don't care, or you become desensitized. And we know that this rapid information is leading to people not reading and reading literature from a text is shown to create more patience, deeper understanding of what you're reading and empathy. And I'm afraid and I'm noticing that as a society, the overload, information overload is leading to a decrease in empathy. And so, Carrie, you're, you have a very, very valid question when you're asking, how is it possible that given these circumstances, a person can stay positive? And I would say that these are precisely the times that we not only need to practice having a positive outlook, but we need to turn that positive outlook into a positive outcome by actionable, tangible steps. Because optimism is about hoping, wanting, wishing for a favorable outcome when there are any number of outcomes possible. So if you don't know what, you can't predict the future, an optimist will naturally have a tendency to have a glass half full thinking. But that's not enough because we also know that optimism, blind optimism, or what we would call toxic positivity can be really detrimental. It's that rah-rah, everything will be fine, just look on the bright side. If you say that to someone in the midst of crisis, they will either tell you to get out or have a glazed look on their eyes to be like, you have no idea what I'm going through. And so practical optimism, optimism, what practical optimism does, the first thing is it validates every single person's experience. And Carrie, I can't tell you how much I perseverated over the author's note because I was like, I need to tell people before I even get into my eight principles of practical optimism and tell them how to cultivate this mindset. I got to just put it, put it out there that I hear you. And these are the laundry list of problems, discrimination, bias, you name it. And, and, and at the same time, all of these problems, while they do exist, we still have to cultivate a positive outlook so that we can then turn it into positive outcomes through creating agency in our lives, actionable agency. It's not enough to just say, look on the bright side. You have to follow it up and you have to validate a person's emotional experience. We've all had collective grief. You know, uh, the first time I went through something with my patients simultaneously was 9-11. And then fast forward 20 years later, I experienced it again during the pandemic where I could literally sit and hold space for my patients and at the same time have my own set of challenges going on because we're all going through, we all went through this together and we're still coming through this together. Yeah, I, I think it's so important that you brought up toxic positivity because I think like you can see the name of your book right now, right? In the world going on. And some people are gonna, some people, right, are probably gonna say, yes, I need to read this and learn about being optimistic. And other people are say, yeah, I probably need that, but how can I be optimistic? Right. So I love that you put it out there right away. And at the beginning, like you said in the beginning of the book, that and and I love that you're you're sharing it in this way. You're not saying just like rah-rah, we can all be optimistic. That's why I love the title of it. It's practical optimism. Like it's not just be rah-rah, be optimistic, see the glass half full. It's you give practical tips on how to actually make that happen. Because I 100% agree with you. The word, when you are 
down in the dumps, when you are really grieving, when you are depressed or going through something tough, the worst thing is when someone does not validate those feelings and just says, you know, oh, it's going to be better and it will all get better. We know that that doesn't help. So I'm so glad that you pointed that out because I do think that, um, you know, you have to, you have to, like you mentioned, you have to validate people and, and their emotions but and their feelings, but you also have to meet them where they are in yes. changing their mindset. And some yes. people, and we we know this too, and you probably have all the stats and science behind it, but we know that some people are naturally more glass half full and some people are naturally more, you know, glass half empty. So, but we can change that mindset and you, I, I know you're good. You give all these tips and tools on how to do that, but I know we can do that. But some people, again, are naturally just one way or the other. I mean, actually, yeah. you know, will you, can you talk about that for a moment? Just like how, like, how hardwired is that to be one way? Because I, I yeah. think that's really interesting. Because obviously, we know some people are more, you know, naturally positive. Others are more naturally negative. But how, how hardwired? How can we change that? Yeah, so we're very hardwired. And in fact, like scientists, um, you know, in around 2011, discovered that there are genes associated with optimism. And if you had one set of genes, you're more likely to be optimistic and look at the glass half full. And if you didn't, you're more likely to have pessimism and depression. But what was also interesting was that they realized that optimism is only 25% genetic. So 75% of it is something else that you have control over. And what that something else is was fascinating to me. What they realized is what these genes actually code for is, yes, a positive outlook, but it also coded for certain skills, cognitive skills, coping skills, like emotional regulation skills, being able to ask for help. And I was like, I, I was already doing therapy and I was already teaching my patients a lot of skills. And I was like, this is so fascinating to me that cognitive behavioral therapy can help people manage anxiety and depression, maybe come out over the other side of it. But why do we wait for the other shoe to drop to before we give people skills, right? Because who else is going to come to cognitive right? Like who's going to therapy? You're not going to go most people. I mean, I'm seeing a change in the last 20 years where like a lot of younger people because of social media and TikTok, they're talking about things and some of them are entering into therapy just because. But for the most part, I remember talking to a professor of mine years ago and I was like, we should have mental health prevention. And he's someone I respect and look up to and admire, but he's like, Sue, that's never going to happen. What is this prevention nonsense? And like brilliant, brilliant physician, head of a department and um, also an author. And and I was like, I know you're laughing at me, but there, it's going to come one day. And we're seeing it now, like in the offices. You know, screening is not the same thing. Sorry. No, I, I just, I love that because you're so right. It's like we go to the dentist every six months. We go yeah. to the we go for our checkups, right? Hopefully annually, we get these things done. Like we should be doing these yeah. things and learning these skills. And we also, I mean, going a step further, we should really be learning a lot of these skills in school, like starting yes. in in nursery school so, or at least in kindergarten. I mean, we should, some of these things should just also be taught to us yes. as part of a, a curriculum that is available to everyone, but we at least should be going. And like you said, doing checkups, getting some, some of these tools from doctors before we are in a crisis so we can manage that crisis better. I totally yes. agree with you. Absolutely. And you know what's so interesting, Carrie, is that optimists are known to do, um, ha they have better habits from dental hygiene to mental hygiene. They're more likely to keep um, and schedule annual visits, more likely to follow through with doctors. So like, yes, yeah, some people are genetically going to be predisposed to understand their health and their body and to value it and have self-care uh, top of mind and look at health as part of self-care not just, you know, the manicure, which I'm all for, uh, but at the same time, they take care of themselves. By the way, side note, everyone, if you're not watching the video of this <laughs> and you're just listening, Sue had some gorgeous purple nails going on right now. <laughs> They're very, no, they are. I was actually already noticing your gorgeous nails because I never have gorgeous nails and I'm noticing your gorgeous nails. And so, yeah, I had to just point that out for people that might not be able to see you. <laughs> Thank you. And then maybe you need to watch this just to see the lilac or whatever color it is. But, you know, Carrie, like the idea of prevention, no one's investing in it. And I was seeing people coming in and like they would only come in like where they had like one hit already. Then they had a crisis. So like maybe they had a history of anxiety, depression. Maybe there was intergenerational trauma. Like none of us had a perfect childhood as well intentioned as our parents are something, you know, and there's this whole idea of adverse childhood events where like somebody has had a divorce or parent had untreated mental illness or substance abuse. And I can't tell you the number of people that I talk to, maybe just even friends, people who have never been in therapy with me, but just people I meet socially, they will tell me 
I think my mom or dad might have been, you know, an alcoholic. I think they might have had, my grandfather had untreated bipolar disorder. No one talked about it. I think so-and-so uncle had a history of depression. So all of this puts us, us more at risk for getting mental health disorders, even if you're like, I'm fine. And then if you already have a risk, that's already like what we considered one hit. And then a crisis, that's the second hit. And then you develop symptoms. And I'm like, you know what? I want to write a manual for that. This is what every kid should be equipped with. Like, let's say in health class in eighth grade and ninth grade. And the book is appropriate for young people. I have one or two places where I mention suicide and there's trigger warnings. But really, everyone, we need to normalize and mainstream the conversation, like just the way people are being equipped with how to help somebody in an opioid, you know, overdose, Mm -hmm. like mental health first aid needs to be a thing where we equip people with like this. These are the signs of anxiety. These are the signs of depression. This is these are the signs of bipolar disorder. This is how you help someone in a crisis. This is what you say to them. So we just we need equipment and I'm, I'm trying to give as much and everything in this book is free and it can be done tomorrow you know and I don't I don't say that this book is ever going to replace treatment individualized care or therapy you can use it in conjunction you can use it as a booster you can use it as prevention you can use it as a maintenance and part of your treatment but in no way can a book obviously replace and I say this throughout the book like everything is science fact don't just take my 20 years of clinical experience take the science I did five years of research, I put myself into a hole, carry, like in the sense that like literally like in a cave. And I had, you know, have and had two, you know, two young kids, homeschooling them, seeing patients, doing the media, teaching at NYU med school. And I, I feel like I gave up a lot, put a lot of things on the back burner, but it was for a mission of I want to change the way we experience mental health and wellness, and that it is something that should be accessible to everybody. I, I love every single thing that you said and you're doing it, it. And I love how it is, like you said, it's, it's really like a manual that people as young as, you know, eighth grade can utilize. And it, it's like one of those things that probably should be required reading, right? Yeah. It's like one, it's one of those things also that you said, yes, it might not replace therapy and it might not replace, you know, medications someone needed. And obviously there's the individualized treatment for everyone. However, it is a great place to start for everyone. And I also think, again, going back to what we already talked about a little bit, it's a great place for people to start, even if you're in a great place. Yes. Even if you're in a great place, you need to, to work on these skills. You need to have these skills for when the other shoe does drop, because it does at some point. Everybody experiences something difficult at some point in their life. And as we know, again, right now, Everyone is experiencing all kinds of things. But even if you think you're doing great, which great, there are many people that are doing well. And I'm not, not, not obviously, we're not saying that every single person is, is, is suffering, but a lot of people are. But even if you aren't, you need to have these tools, like you said, to be prepared for when you do go through something. So I think it's an amazing place for everyone to start. So let's dive in a little bit into some of those actionable tips to cultivate a positive mindset and to put practical optimism into practice on a daily basis. And yes. I also love, sorry, it's one other thing that you, you said too that I also love. I love giving people tips that they can not only put into practice right away, but they can put into practice immediately. And like you said, are free. These are tips yes. and tools and things you can do that don't require going and buying something and doing something. I mean, sometimes you have to do those things too, but I love these tips that we can incorporate into our life that again, doesn't require us going and buying something or joining something or. Yes. So, you know, I have eight pillars and I start with purpose and really it's, they're no, in no particular order, but for me, they were important to put it in a certain arc because you start with anything that you do. Purpose could be a capital P, whether it's your purpose in life, or it could be the small P where you, it is a purpose in a particular task, in a relationship in a contract, you know, in a job that you're taking. So really you can define it however you want, but it is approaching something in a very intentional and very deliberate way. And a lot of times if we're talking about capital P, they're like, I don't know what my purpose in life is. And that's totally okay. And I want to remind people that purpose A doesn't always come from your paycheck. It could be raising your kids. It could be taking care of a family member. It could be pottery. It could be gardening. It could be dancing, right? It could be starting a new business. And and it could be any number of things. And your purpose, what it was yesterday, isn't necessarily going to be your purpose today. It isn't going to be necessarily your purpose tomorrow. A couple of quick things to keep in mind if you need, you you feel like you're, you're trying to find it. I would say if you can't find a purpose, I think it's your job to create it. And what I mean by that is put the cart before the horse. 
There's a tip in cognitive behavioral therapy called behavioral activation. And it's when you're, let's say, feeling down or you're feeling negative and you're like, I don't want to go to that. For example, Carrie's having a masterclass. Nah, it's too much effort. Nah, I don't have the energy, right? And you're like, but wait a minute. I could go and I could meet people. It could open doors. And like, if you have the resources, I get it. Some things, some people are like, no, it's not meant for me right now. But what is the smaller version? Is there like a local meetup group? Is there a podcast listening to this podcast? Like what are small, actionable, concrete steps that are putting the cart before the horse and doing things even when you don't feel like it? Take out your calendar. This is called activity planning. Populate your calendar with activities that bring you joy. One of the questions I always ask people who are fledgling with, with purpose, they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, when, what do you enjoy most in life? Right. And when is the last time that you did it? And they're like, oh, I hung up my guitar. Oh, I used to go ice skating. I used to go skiing. And I'm like, well, then populate your calendar. You have to be intentional and deliberate about the things that bring you joy. And the things that bring you joy, once you start to populate that in your calendar, they beget, purpose begets more uh, more purpose. Success begets more success. This so is where the, the, the cart has to come before the horse. Another thing, if you're like fledgling in purpose, okay, sometimes purpose is obscured when we're in the midst of a depression. So you need to get a... Talk to your primary care doctor. Am I depressed? Get a referral to uh, a therapist. But something you can do today right now, if you're like, I don't have a sense of purpose. Uh, first of all, I'd say I don't, I don't believe that all of us. It's a matter of just, you know, scratching, move, move, removing the things that are obscuring them and saying, what am I really good at? What does the world need? And this is kind of like the Japanese concept of ikigai. Yeah. What is the world need? What, what gives me passion? What gives me motivation? And, 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 what is, what am I doing in service of other people? Because a big part of purpose is getting outside of your own head, getting you outside of the self-absorption. I want to take a moment to tell you about our podcast sponsor, which I'm a super fan of. In today's fast-paced go, go, go world, it's so easy to get overwhelmed and lose focus, especially when you're trying to accomplish critical tasks that require a sharp mind. If you're looking for a way to support your brain health and stay on top of your game, if you know me at all, you know I'm always looking to do that. Well then, you want to know about Cognizant Citicoline. This nutrient helps support brain function and it plays a vital role in nourishing and protecting brain cells. Cognizant Citicoline can help support focus, memory, and attention, promote cognitive performance, and support overall brain health. It's also known for its ability to support brain energy and is backed by numerous studies that show its effectiveness. Whether you're a student, a busy professional, a multitasking parent, or anyone looking to optimize mental clarity and sharpness, adding Cognizant Citicoline to your daily routine can help you achieve those goals and support your brain for the future. It can be found in many different products, including chewables, gummies, beverages, and even cold brew coffee. Visit Cognizant.com for exactly where to find this ingredient, and don't forget to look for Cognizant on the label. Because a big part of purpose is getting outside of your own head, getting you outside of the self-absorption, what they call self-referential thinking. And this is like scientific people. There's something called the default mode network that's activated when we're not doing anything specific. And people who are ruminating have much more activity in this default mode network. You want to get out of it by doing something concrete. You can't find purpose. Go exercise. I can guarantee you 30 minutes later, 40 minutes later, even if you have 20 minutes, this is shown as a fact. Purpose is boosted by exercise and people who exercise have more purpose in life. It's like a self, like, uh, like a virtuous cycle upward cycle. That's what I talk about with nutritious life and how all the pillars work together physiologically and behaviorally. And it's like you just said, like the exercise, you're releasing these endorphins that can then like, again, like you just connected it to then purpose and all, all of these things work together, which is why, you know, I yeah. always talk about all the different pillars of nutritious life and how they work together from exercise to what you eat to sleep and all of these things. And so I love that you brought that up because even in this sense, even, even when you bring it down to purpose, yeah. it, you can connect exercise to that. Yeah. So I love yeah. that. Just explain yeah. that. Thank you. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. I love what you're saying, Terry, because really everything, you know, like that, the word sort of like holistic or global, like it really, because exercise, I wanted to, if I could write it in every chapter. So there's eight pillars and each pillar is so distinct. But now that you're what you're saying, I can think that exercise really fits in. It sounds so funny, but it fits into all of the pillars in a way, or, you know, any of these things. And it really is very circular. But the the idea of 
one workout session a week can decrease your anxiety. Again, I'm not saying that this is a cure, that this is going to replace treatment, right? So that's like a disclaimer I'm putting that anything I'm saying, do it as an adjunct. But we do know that even if one 45-minute session a week of, of exercise can decrease anxiety, decrease depression, decrease burnout, and give you a sense of purpose. So like if you needed any reason to get out of your house and, or even in your house with, with the dumbbells, with whatever you have access to, a mat, whatever, exercise bands, like please do it. So another thing I say in purpose is that um, purpose decreases inflammation in the body. So when we found young people volunteering, like 15-year-olds giving back by helping younger kids do homework, those kids who volunteered have less inflammation, less heart disease later on in life. So there's many more activities that I give you, but like that is my, you know, two, two minutes spiel, five minutes spiel. On, on well, I love it. Well, and it's funny when you were talking about exercise and purpose, I was thinking about volunteering also as having that same sort of immediate response, because mm-hmm. we know that when you volunteer, you, there is that increase. And again, I don't have the exact stat, but I know that there is that increase in, um, happiness and reduce stress and, and, and depression. So, um, and again, it all goes back to, I guess, like you're talking about, it goes back to purpose. Um, but so whether it's volunteering and working, you know, working with, working with people and, and giving back or exercising, I mean, those are two, I I love, those are two important things that have multiple benefits that everyone can put into practice. And, um, just going back to the exercise thing too, it's, it's interesting. I, I always think like, what's good for what's good. What I always talk with food, what's good for the mind, what's good for the body. When it comes to food, I say what's good for the body is also going to be good for the mind is also going to be good for the heart. And when it comes to exercise, it's really the same way too, right? What's good exercise is what's good for the body. It's also going to be good for the mind and it's also going to be good for the heart. Yes, absolutely. And we know that like, for example, like weightlifting in middle age for women, like decreases cognitive decline, right? So it's so interesting to me that prevent or slow down the progression of cognitive decline through exercise. And you know, when you were talking about volunteering, it's so important that when in the midst of our struggle, the last thing we're thinking about sometimes is other people. And we're like, but my cup is empty. What do I have to give? And you don't realize is give what in whatever form you can, however little you can, right? So if you can't commit, a lot of times people are like, I can't commit to the standing two hour commitment, then it's fine. What's, what's, what are you going to do once a month? Can you go to a food pantry? Can you, in what way can you contribute? And it doesn't even have to be big or formal. It could be literally smiling at a stranger on the street, asking how they're doing. Do you need help with anything? Asking a friend, can I connect you? It sounded like, you know, you might be struggling or can I give you some advice? Would you like for me to be a sounding board? You just went through surgery. Can I just sit with you? Can I bring you soup? Can I, what can I do to help? And, um, even in the midst of depression. So this is where I, you know, like I, I'm a psychiatrist. I work with people in the darkest of times. So I feel comfortable doing both to be able to hold space for their grief and say, I hear what you're saying. And I'm really sorry. And it sounds like things are so hard right now. And I know you might think, what is she talking about by pushing me to do something for somebody else? And at the same time, that is part of your treatment. That is part of your treatment is to get outside the house, to do something for someone else, to sign up for that exercise class, to sign up for that master class. Like do the thing that feels hard, but you know will pay exponential return on investment. And I'm all about that is like the, the four, and you know, I can get right into it is the four M's of mental health. I was just going to say, I want to talk about one of the other things that you talk about in the book, which is the, are the four M's. So yeah, let's yeah. talk about that. Yes. So, you know, Carrie's funny story, like April, 2020, I get a call that there's going to be this huge program that Global Citizen is doing. And it's like a one night benefit. And they're going to have Elton John and Oprah and, you know, I don't know, Rolling Stones and fabulous people, Gail King, like the list went on, Lady Gaga, World Health Organization, United Nations. And I was like, great, I'll be watching. And they're like, no, 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 we want you to participate in the program. And I was like, participate. I'm like, I don't sing. I don't dance. I don't know what you want me to do. <laughs> And they're like, no, we want you to come on to give like mental health tips and inspiration and advice and I was and 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 motivate people and help them and help them feel less alone. Like New York City was reaching the peak of um right. death toll unfortunately right. during the pandemic, April 2020. And I was like, Okay, great, that's a lot. Uh we have an hour. Do you have an hour for me? And they're like, No, 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 we have fifty-nine seconds. And I was like, fifty-nine seconds, what am I giving to people that's hopeful right. and inspirational right. and tangible? Wow. And so I looked at my my practice, I looked at who I think of as sort of uh, the eternal practical optimist is my father, who's in his late 80s. He's a retired psychiatrist. I didn't know your father was a psychiatrist. That, that's amazing. 
Yeah. And, you know, had done pioneering work in India, had started a school with my mom that was sort of very ahead of its time in the 1960s and 70s and got like a lot of attention from the prime ministers in India. And it was integrating children who had disabilities and um, mental health problems into the fold of mainstream classrooms. And then he came here and continued his work as practice. And they were at both of them were advocates in mental health space. So I called him and I was like, Dad, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, what, like, what do you accomplish in 59 seconds? And he's like, you can save a life. Like, he's like, you got this. And I hang up the phone. And I was like, great. Thanks for the, the, the advice. But I was like, but, I, but I that's felt so scared. inspiring. Like, you can save a life. Like, you can save a life in 59 yeah. seconds. You can do it. You got yeah. this, girl. Yeah. Like, even if you're drowning, you know, think about it. Like, if, if somebody is drowning, like, that's all you need. And then I, like, thought about him. And I was like, what, how is he in his late 80s? So we talk about this concept of, and I talk about it in the book, exceptional longevity, which is living a longer and healthier life. But in your 80s and, you know, in the, in the United States, we have longer lifespan, but not necessarily longer health span. So people are living longer, but the last 10 years is not in good health. They're dependent on other people physically. They're immobile. There's cognitive decline. And when I look at him, I'm like, he walks five miles a day. He's on the Pendleton. He does weights, he picks up my kids from school. How is he able to like be such a superstar? What is what have I grown up with front and center and maybe not even know? What do I do? What do I tell my patients? I often, as a joke, back in the day when we had written prescription pads, would write exercise. I would write things to them, non-medication, so that they really understood the importance. And that's, and so, what, by the way, I, I mean, that's what makes you so cutting edge, because I think so many doctors don't do that. Yeah. They, they, yeah. They, they just put what you typically see on a prescription pad on a prescription pad. So yeah. I love yeah. that. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's sad because, you know, that wasn't, unfortunately, nutrition and, you know, exercise and sleep hygiene aren't things that, you know, at the time were front and center in medical training. And I hope that that's changing. And I think it is slowly, but it really should be. It should be like that first. And we do talk about lifestyle interventions, but I feel like that should come. That should be like 80 percent because really 80 percent of your health is determined by your habits. And we have a lot more control than we do. So I was like, okay, I got 59 seconds. And what do I do in my practice? What do I do in my life? What do I know? What have I learned from my dad front and center? And so I distilled, crystallized this in this language of the four M's of mental health. And I've been doing it with my patient for years, but it never became, because it's like, if you have 59 seconds, what are you going to say to someone that could hopefully be life-saving and life-changing. And of course, you need treatment, not going to replace it. The four M's are an adjunct. But for everyone else, prevention, maintenance, um, this is where I, four daily habits that I do that are kind of non-negotiable. So one is movement. We talked about that. And movement can be as simple as you walking to your parked car, you taking the, if you do feel comfortable taking the subway to get out earlier, to have two to three exercise schedule. You know, we talk about 150 minutes of exercise and I would say go for it. But really, whatever you can accomplish, because even one 40-minute session will boost your moods if we're talking about mental health. The second thing is mastery. And I felt so um, honored to be interviewed by the New York Times in the beginning of January. They did a six-day well challenge. Jan Dong was the well editor who did this. And I was participating in two out of the six days. Um, and one was creating oasis moments. So there are these protected moments where the, you, you, can, you, know, you can engage in mindfulness. And one was called low stakes flow state. So under mastery, you don't have to be a master to experience mastery. It is simply a time when you're experiencing flow. You're in the moment. You're completely immersed in what you're doing. Nothing else in the world matters at that moment. And ideally, it should be an activity that gives you a little bit of challenge, but it should all be fun and pleasurable. And hopefully there's learning involved. And Jancy Don asked me, like, so what do you do? And I was kind of embarrassed. I was like, listen, the key is you don't have to be a master, right? So I really enjoy, for me, my flow moments are learning salsa dancing, practicing salsa dancing, right? And that's what got me through medical school because I was like, you're working 80 to 100 hours a week. You're in hospitals that don't look so pretty and the lighting and cockroaches and all that. What <laughs> The cockroaches. People don't think of that when they think of medical school, but okay. <laughs> and anatomy lab, gross anatomy lab, right? So there's a lot of like not so glamorous, not so sexy moments, you know, for my entire medical training, running around between five New York City hospitals and, you know, working in all sorts of environments and having getting great training, but at the same time, you know, self-care, getting lost in some learning that, that is fun and pleasurable that are outside of the books, you know, isn't something that everyone can do. You know, like I was in residency in an off-off-Broadway play. I took acting classes. I mean, we were working 100 hours a week, but I was fully immersing myself in art, fashion, culture, 
nightlife, like everything. And, and it meant like at times giving up sleep, you know, which I could do in my 20s. And I wouldn't recommend this to anyone else. And I know that the movement, you know, nowadays, the joke is a 20, every 20 plus, they're all in bed by 9pm. Like they're not going to the bar, they're not going to the nightclubs. But, um, but I, I feel like I have led a rich and full life, despite all of my professional obligations, because I'm a curious person and mastery is about um, giving life to your curiosity in whatever way, you know, pottery, gardening, cooking, you name it. Right. I, I love, I love the cook. I mean, obviously I love the cooking one, but I like cooking for many people, you know, because I, I talk a lot, a lot about that with people is that, you know, some people say I'm such a bad chef, but I really like, like being in the kitchen. I'm like, so who cares if you're good at it? It doesn't matter. It's just, if you enjoy it, it's yeah. something that has so many other benefits aside from the fact that it can be healthier for you to prepare your own food. There are all of these other benefits. So the way you're describing it is it's exactly this. It's that mastery. It's being in that flow state. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, and, and, and one thing to just provide reassurance to anyone learning something new is that it comes with time. And as you see your, your skill level in, improve, you get even more enhanced. And then you're like, okay, now I'm going to like reward myself and I'll buy a better set of knives or a cutting board or whatever it is. So you find yourself getting better and wanting to invest. And again, this is where the, the virtuous upward cycle comes in. The next one is um, meaningful engagement. And this is my favorite of the four M's because meaningful engagement is about connecting to somebody on a deeper and authentic level. And this is why a lot of people are unhappy, a lot of people are lonely because they're they're missing these opportunities for deep and meaningful connection. And that requires time. That requires you putting your phone aside. Just the mere presence of a phone on a dinner table guarantees that the conversation is not going to go deep because a person is already anticipating there's going to be some interruption. The key with meaningful engagement is it doesn't have to take a lot of time and it also doesn't always have to go really deep. It's kind of like mixing up with having a little bit of what I call social snacking and micro connections. These are like the lighter superficial relationships, like running into a friend that you met at the yoga class, seeing them 15 minutes early, introducing yourself, having the social banter and chit chat, the dog walker, the barista, you know, the grocery store clerk. How's your day? How are you doing? Um, but we need to also, we need to have those superficial connections and also supplement them with more deeper and meaningful relationships, which are, you know, if you can once a week in person, if your life allows for it to meet and go deep, put the phone away, have a dinner, lunch, coffee, whatever, walk in the park while you're talking to them and say, how are things? How are you doing? How are you really doing? And then trying to trigger back what was the last time we saw each other? What did we say? What was this person going through? Can I follow up on any of those things? If I saw them and somebody was sick in the family, like, how are they doing? They told you they went on a vacation. How was the vacation? So it requires being intentional, being deliberate, having purpose. Um, but the, the rewards really are tremendous because we know that the quality of our life depends on the quality of our relationships. I love that one so much. And I think no matter how busy I am as well, that is something that I absolutely take time for multiple times a week. I, I, and if I, and if I haven't for some reason, because I've been so busy and I, I will notice if a few days goes by and I have not had that. I mean, that yeah. is something that has been so key in my life. I know for sure. And I'm so, and, and you're so good at it, Carrie, in that, in, the, in like connecting with people and also making time. You know, I remember when, when we had met, you were just like, I know that we're busy, but like, we're going to do this. Like we met for coffee and like, you came, you were so sweet. You came to me, you know, like right by my office. Cause I, I was like, okay, I have this like narrow window of time. And you're like, let's do it. So it requires a person to be like, I value this person. I value this connection. I want to get to know them more. And the time doesn't really, if you only have 30 minutes, if you only have 45 minutes, like I was recently in LA doing podcasts for the book and there was a friend that I had met um, through mutual friends. We stayed connected on Instagram and she's a mom of three and she was running around. I had all of these events planned and we were both so like in sync on, in, on the right wavelength where we had never met in person before, but we were intentional because we wanted to meet. Uh, she's also someone who's like, you know, lifestyle wellness influencer, comes to the, the city from California every now and then. But we were sort of on the same wavelength and we made it happen. It was only 45 minutes. I was coming from Palisades Parkway. She was coming from Manhattan Beach. We met in Santa Monica, but in right. between talks and events. And I know LA traffic is so horrendous. And that's why I'm mentioning it, because if you are not deliberate, like I was I was already meeting with somebody else and I had to say, please forgive me. I We spent a few hours today. Loved seeing you. Um, but this is also really important to me. So you have to, if you're not, it's so easy for people to kind of flake out and be like, I'm sorry, I'm busy. And then just, it never happens. And it, we won't, we won't follow up. And I, I have one more. We miss and we miss those opportunities. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So what's the last M? Yeah. So the last M is mindfulness. 
And there's so many ways. The only thing I want to say, because somebody may say, I don't like meditation. And I have a lot of patients who will tell me in the midst of anxiety, they're like, the last thing I want to do is meditate. All it's, all it's going to do is make me ruminate even right. more. Right. And I say to people, like, a lot of these skills, and I, I loved your point, Carrie, in the beginning was that, like, even if you think things are going well, still utilize practical optimism. And for two reasons. One is we all have blind spots. And number two, that um, in the midst of crisis, it's very hard to practice skills. It's very hard to utilize them. So it's always good to, in peacetime, to use these skills so you can use them in crisis, you can use them in battle. And so with mindfulness, I would say, even if it's 60 seconds a day to stop everything, to do a deep breathing exercise, or even if you're doing something, do it single-mindedly. That's it. If you're washing dishes, okay, maybe you can l- listen to a Nutritious Life podcast. Otherwise, uh, you know, don't do anything. Wash do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Otherwise, wash the damn dishes, you know. And um, I know we're so, we're in an age of multitasking and it's fine, but science shows that when you're multitasking, you're actually less efficient, you're less accurate, and you're less productive. So something to keep in mind in praise of doing something single, single-mindedly. There's so much good information here. And by the way, we only even went through one of those pillars. There's so many more in your book and so much more information. You are so brilliant and so beautiful and doing so much good in this world. I cannot wait for every single person to get their hands on this book. So everyone, the book is out today. There's more information in the show notes about where to find this incredible book and also how to connect with the incredible Dr. Sue Varma. Thank you so much for being here. I have one final question. How do you initiate your nutritious life? What's the one pillar of a nutritious life or what's the one thing you do to activate that nutritious life cycle? Yes, I love that question. So for me, Carrie, how I activate my nutritious life is trying to engage in something that both reminds me that really in in, in the grand scheme of things, we're, we're just, you know, a, a particle of sand, you know, a, a speck of dust in the grander scheme. And what this does is it, it creates a sense of humility and it creates a sense of oneness that I am a part of something bigger. And for me, the way I like to feel like I'm a part of something bigger is experiencing awe. So this could be going out in nature, even if it's just a city park bench, seeing the trees, seeing the greenery, reminding myself that there is a beauty that came into this world before me and there's a beauty that's going to come after me and I'm just a part of this. So whatever problems I'm feeling, they're small in comparison to this amazing world that we need to protect, right? That we need to take care of. And um, swimming in the ocean, anything that allows me to feel connected to something bigger. And I feel like the ultimate goal of practical optimism is to experience a feeling of unity and oneness with other people, with our planet. And so for me, that's how I do it. And I would say anything that, I don't mean make you feel small in a small way, in an insignificant way, but small in the sense that you are interconnected, that we all are interconnected to something much bigger. And that helps decrease our isolation and our loneliness. That was such a, beautiful answer. And I've never heard that one before. And I love it. And I just am so grateful for your time and for being here today. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. What a pleasure, Carrie. So fun talking to you. And I'm always learning so much and I just love the work that you're doing. So thank you for having me. Thank you.